Matthew 5:13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All right, good morning. Hey, do me a favor. Reach in the front of your little chair and pull one of these out. See that? It's like magic. I just spoke a magic word and they all appeared in there just now. So um, basically, these are two areas in the church where we are struggling. And they're like, hey, um, we're going to have to take a few weeks off from like We Watermark or hospitality. So like no donuts. And then like your kids can sit with you. That will be fun, right? Um, So uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that. I want you to just pick a day. Just one day over the next, I think that we got like six months on here, six or eight months. Um, just kind of, it says right there, which service? Circle one, first or second date. Can you, I don't know. It's all set up. It's all there, self-explanatory. Pick a date in which you're going to serve, and that's it. It's like, it's like one day. If you want to pick more than one, that's awesome too. But like, we really need your help. I'm glad you're here, hanging out, drinking our coffee, and eating our donuts. But our kids are like wandering in the parking lot. <laughs> alone. Um, so pick, pick one and drop that in the offering box and I'll pick one and I'll just take that week off and I'll join you back there and, and we'll just do kid stuff and they'll be in here like, what's, nothing's happening here. Of course. Um, okay. So thank you. Do that. Don't fail me. You got this. We can do this. All right. So, uh, this is our passage today. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we finished the Beatitudes. That was long. About 10, 12, 12 weeks, I think, in the Beatitudes. But um, today we're talking about salt and light. And uh, I'm going to open up a word of prayer. And then we're going to talk about salt in the first century, light in the first century. Uh, and, uh, and then we're going to talk about how these words would have been received to the original audience. We're going to talk about uh, the followers of Jesus. Um, how many were there? How were they chosen? Um, what did all this look like? Um, and, and compared to you, what kind of people were they? So uh, I think this will be great. I'm excited about this. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for this place, these people. We gather so that we can focus on higher things. And we ask that you would reveal some higher things to us, some things that we haven't thought about, some things we haven't heard. Um, I ask that you would fill us up, that you would uh, um, give us paths to new joy happiness and meaning. Give us paths to forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, make clear the roads that you want us to go down. Help us to be a welcoming, beautiful, honest community um, that can actually be a place of healing for our city, for our world. I lift up all those who uh, couldn't join us for whatever reason. I ask that you would uh, gift them with uh, your presence this morning. Let them know that they are loved. All those who gathered here today, give us what we need. Um, Teach us what it means to be a follower of you and to pour our lives out for the benefit of others around us. Thank you. In your name, amen. Okay, I'm going to talk about, start off talking about salt. So uh, we all know what salt is. I don't need to explain it. Um, 
but how it was used uh, in the ancient world might be a lot different than, than it is now. So um, there's really three uses for salt in the ancient world. Um, so if you're going to read a passage like this, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet. So these people had obviously working definitions of how salt was used in the early church um, and in the early first century. Um, and so we need to be aware of these things. The first thing that, we, that salt was typically used for was sacrifices. Um, it's actually, um, as far as we go back in, in like human anthropology, um, the farthest back that we can see humans making sacrifices, salt was a part of these sacrifices. It was a very important part um, of these sacrifices. It was, um, it was used um, first off to, uh, to sort of prep the fire and put it on there and then put the meat on top of that. Um, it was a symbol of purity. The, the salt that they would use for the sacrifices was pure white. Um, and they would, they would recognize that as, 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 as things that were white dedicated to the temple and to be given to the gods. And so they would put them on the, on the altar. Um, and well into the first century, I mean, this, the, for the longest duration of sacrifices that were given, um, salt was always a part of this. Well into the first century and beyond, the Jews were using salt in their sacrifices. Um, so it would be thrown on the altar. Um, second... Um, Oh, hold on. So to clear that up, a sacrifice, in case you didn't know, um, it was a gift that human beings would give a god. Um, whoever your god was, you would bring an animal or some crops or something that you would lay on top of the altar and offer to, to the gods as a gift. All right? Um, so, so salt was always considered part of that gift. Um, this here is uh, an ancient first century Roman kitchen in the city of Pompeii. Look, marble countertops. Um, <laughs> three sinks. Wow, living large. Um, and uh, and salt was a regular everyday use in the kitchen. It would uh, it would uh, preserve all of the meats. They would come straight from the butcher. And refrigeration wasn't really invented until like uh, last generation or the generation before. Um, and so meat would go bad. And you would basically. Lay the salt all over the table, put the meat on top of that, flip it over and over and over, cover every inch of the, of the meat with salt, and it would last a long time. Salt staved off decay. It kept things from breaking down and getting disgusting and being smelly. Um, and if the meat was heavily salted or buried even in salt, it would last a really long time. Uh, and it could be kept and used to feed people. Um, so as I'm describing these things, I want you to think about when Jesus tells them, you are the salt of the earth, what does this mean? So um, they would think, it, oh, we're, we're, we're a gift to God. We're part of, part of the sacrifices to God. Like this is part of our lives. It's part of this. Also, we're here to preserve. We're here to, um, to stave off the decay in the world around us. Um, we're here to be a part of that. We're the last line of defense against corruption. Um, it was, salt was also pressed into people's wounds um, to keep out infection and to keep things from going south in that area. Um, and basically, so there's something else to contemplate. All of these things would be heavily contemplated by the ancient Jewish audience who was reading this book of Matthew. Um, and you would think about the salt in your wounds and how it helped bring about and facilitate healing in some way. Um, also, if we're talking kitchen and salt, salt is also obviously useful for flavoring and seasoning, um, and, uh, just kind of makes stuff better, 
So there's that. Um, now, when salt was useless, when salt had been all used up, when it had been um, ruined after being on the meat for a while, or when it had been burned up on the altar, um, when it was no longer useful, when it had lost its flavor, its saltiness, as the passage says, um, the passage says that it's thrown out and only useful to be trampled underfoot. This is an ancient Roman street. Salt was used. All these stones are here, and the salt would be thrown into the street because it kept, first off, kept the streets looking nice and white. It also would dry up and um, destroy any organic matter that might be in the street from the horses um, and generally keep things cleaner. Um, But it was only after it was no longer used for any other purpose that it would be taken out and thrown into the street. Um, And so Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Jesus also says, uh, you are the light of the world. Um, light in the first century in an ancient Palestinian home. Uh, this is sort of a, a, a scale model of ancient uh, Jerusalem. And everyone would live sort of in these communal houses that were separated by rooms, and a family would have a room, and there's typically one window in that house. In Palestinian um, houses, they would have been sort of round Uh, There were stone structures, a door on one side, and a round window about 18 inches. So not very big. And that is all the light that would enter into the house. If you've ever been, uh, what do they call it, spelunking? It's a fun word. Um, Going down deep into caves. And you ever go down into a cave uh, really deep, and then someone turns the lights off. It is the darkest darkness you will ever experience. Um, It's places that have never seen lights and when you turn off those lights, what you realize is like there's a level of darkness in which you've never seen before. And what you'll also notice is maybe the guide will take a flashlight, a small flashlight, and turn it on, and the entire cave lights up. Because the darker things are, the less light you really need to light up the space. And so the original listeners would ponder this. This is like some weighty stuff, and they would sit and they would meditate on these ideas um, and if you're in an ancient first century house and you have a small window, certain times of the day, the light's not really going to be passing into that window, depending on where your lo- house was located, which way it's facing. And so what you're going to need is some kind of light source. And they didn't have candles in the first century. I mean, they did, but they didn't really use them for um, normal, everyday usage. Um, they would use something called a lamp. Think Aladdin, genie, except typically... Uh, Only the rich people would have them made out of brass. The average person would have it made out of stone or clay, um, fired clay of some kind. And it would be full of uh, an oil. Um, Typically, I believe it was like an animal fat. And then there would be a wick sort of floating in the end of it there. And uh, it was very hard to light these things. We have matches and big lighters today. We just, it's very easy for us to create fire. In the ancient world, there would be a central fire pit somewhere in the city and you would go... And, and, and the city would keep it lit, and you would go all the way down there, no matter what time of day it was, if you needed light, take your, and you would light it and take it back to your house. So um, you didn't want to always be doing that. Um, I, imagine, I imagine there was lots of conversations with parents with their toddlers, like, you blew out the candle again. <laughs> Put on your shoes. We're going for a walk. Um, and so when they left the house... Uh, typically they would take the candle, the, the lamp, off the lampstand and put it on the floor, and they would put it under what's called a bushel measure. So you have that song, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Boom, bushel. When I was a kid, I thought it was like a bush. Oh, like a bush. 
I'm like, that would catch the bush on fire. That doesn't sound safe. Um, of course you're not going to hide it under a bush because then someone's going to call the fire department. Um, but no, this is a bushel measure, and they would put the pot over the lamp and prop it up in some way that it would continue to receive air so you could leave the house and the candle would stay lit and you would come back in the evening with a little bit more oil, lift the bushel off, put the oil in and put it back up on the top and then the room is lit up and you could see, you can cook and you can enjoy your time together, sing songs, whatever. Um, and, and so these are the things that the early people would have in their minds when Jesus says, you are salt and you are are light. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Um, if the salt has lost all its flavor, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out on the streets. Um, no one, when they really want to light up a space, is going to hide the lamp under the bushel. They're not going to do that. Um, and so you have all this cultural language here. Um, but what I want to focus on, so, so first off, I want you to take those ideas. I want you to spend some time this week sort of meditating on those ideas. What, it me- what does it mean to be a part of a, a community that, that is... That, that should be part of the preservation of society, um, to stave off decay, to, to heal wounds, to, um, to flavor things, um, to make them good, um, to, to light up a space. And the darker the space, the smaller the light that's needed to light this space up. So there's all that to think about. I'm going to go in a different direction entirely um, because I want to watch the progression of the Beatitudes. Remember, we started off, with Jesus gathering his disciples and he teaches them all these amazing things that nobody had ever heard before. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who want to be better and just can't get there. Um, Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Those who only are focused on one thing. Um, Blessed are those who are out to make peace between two sides who are warring. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of all this. Um... And so there's this, remember, the dichotomy is the important thing. Everyone believed and knew um, that the rich and the powerful and the talented and the holy and the spiritual were blessed. The high up people who had made it and who were capable and were powerful, uh, they were obviously blessed. Of course God blesses them. God blesses them all the time because they were able to achieve things. And then there's the rest of us who haven't been able to achieve anything. And then Jesus enters in and there's the proclamation that, no, you are blessed. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the, are the hungry. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the persecuted. Um, none of this happens because God has rejected you. God loves you and is moving towards you and is for you. And there's the proclamation of love and blessing. Now we move from that into the very next passage where Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So whereas we could focus on what it means to be salt and light, and we just did, the main focus of this passage is not on what they are. It's who he is declaring to be salt and light. Blessed are those those who are mourning the sad, the sorrowful, those who can't get it together, those who can't do better, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Which seems counterintuitive. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Um, And when you actually look at the way that uh, Jesus ordered his ministry, you can actually see him taking this and putting it into practice. Um... When Jesus, I mean, who is he talking to here? He's talking to his, of course, his disciples. Um, But his disciples were not just the 12. 
We tend to think that Jesus only had 12 disciples because the Bible specifically focuses on these 12 disciples. Um, but there's a reason that, that Jesus chooses 12 disciples, per se, to gather around him. And the only reason Jesus does this is to point back at something else. Just to point back at the book of Exodus. This is, a, this is a metaphor. When Jesus chooses 12 men to follow around him, he's basically, he's creating the image of the Exodus, of the books of Deuteronomy, um, of you're in the desert, and the Holy of Holies is there in the middle, and there's 12 tribes around the Holy of Holies, around the tabernacle, and we interact and we learn from God. We tabernacle with God here. And so when Jesus comes and he says, God, in the flesh now, I'm tabernacled, not in a tent, but in a body. I'm going to gather 12 around me. What he's saying is we're, we're starting over. We're doing this again. And, and when you think about that, now I want you to think about this. And so he chooses 12 that he makes his main disciples, that he gives his message to. And then there's these outer bands. I call it the rings of the Lord. <laughs> See? <laughs> Trademark. Um, okay. So uh, there's the 12 right around Jesus. And I put some references on the bottom if you want to write some of these references down and like check this stuff because it's amazing when you actually see it. So there's 12 disciples around Jesus. Matthew 10 too, lists all of them. And then around the 12, there's what's called the 72 in Luke 10. It says that literally starts off with Jesus gathered the 72 disciples. And he sent them off in groups of two to all of the neighboring cities to proclaim his message, to teach other people sort of the rabbinical message of Jesus. Uh, And then outside of that, there are the 500. In 1 Corinthians 15, 6, there are the 500 disciples sort of there gathered who Jesus met after the resurrection. He goes and finds them. um, And they're like, no, there's 500 people that, that were followers of Christ, that even his followers, 500 of them have seen him since the crucifixion. Um, and then outside of that band, there's this, what's called the 5,000 followers. Those are the ones who followed Jesus everywhere he went when he was doing his teachings, uh, the ones who were fed from the loaves and fishes, um, the ones who were always there and always so present that a couple of times Jesus got in a boat and like took off across a lake because he's like, yo, I got to get some downtime away from you people. Um, and he would get up early and just sort of run away. Um, there's times where you find Jesus just hiding from all of these followers and disciples that were around him. So many. And so the questions that we tend to have, because we're Americans and, and we're into uh, organization and corporations and stuff like that, um, we tend to think, well, these rings must have been like levels of holiness, right? Like, obviously, you're going to promote and put in your inner circle the most talented and the smartest, the ones who get it, right? Because that's how we run our businesses. And actually, no. That's not at all what Jesus did. Um, It almost appears that Jesus kind of did the opposite. Um, And so what I want to do, I'm going to do a lot of like uh, verse switching here. We're going to jump from verse to verse to verse. I want to show you some things um, about the 12 disciples and about some of the 72 around him that... um, that sort of lay this out, that when Jesus was talking about how blessed are the, the poor and those who can't get it right and all that, that he meant this and actually put this into practice. Um, and so, let, I mean, let's look at a few. I'll try to keep rolling fast so you don't lose interest here. Acts 4.13, um, we have, um, I'll just read it. He says, now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So, 
you have, after the work of Jesus, and he sends them out, as a rabbi does, you're going to go into the, into the world and you're going to teach. You're going to make more disciples. As you were disciples of me, you're going to make more disciples of you. And they're going to make more disciples of them. Um, Peter and John are the most vocal. Peter's the oldest disciple. He speaks the most. Um, they knew the message of Jesus, and they're speaking, and the people come and gather, and they look at them, and they say, well, these, these guys are not educated. Obviously, not educated. Something about them was like looked down upon. They were uneducated. They were common men. And it says, when they saw this, they were astonished. Like, why are these people, I've heard so much about this rabbi, why are these guys his representatives? Seems to me like he lacks judgment. You know, the kind of decisions, the kind of things that we, that we think about people. And they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And so we have that. Um, they were uneducated common men. The only difference that set them apart was they had been with Jesus. Then uh, you have Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Um, it says, He went on through the cities and the villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Uh, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, from uh, the, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So the women are paying the bills. There's a sermon there somewhere. Um, and, uh, and these women are part of the sort of the second ring, the 72. Uh, it's not like a symbolic group. It's just a, a closer group of people that Jesus knew closer. And, uh, and it's not only that the men had a past. They were uneducated. They had failed at becoming disciples, rabbinical disciples. And Jesus chose them anyways. Uh, it's, that, it's that the women had these histories too. Um, some of the women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, uh, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So there's some, like, there's some history, there's some past, there's some spiritual oppression, there's some um, sickness and illness um, brought about by, probably by lifestyles. Um, all of this kind of hints at like sort of working in pagan temples and these kinds of things. Um, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And so there's some women from other places too that, that um, someday I want to talk to you about where this money came from. It's fascinating. I've talked about it before. Um, and uh, the people surrounding Jesus, um, even the ones who were rich had, had sort of left behind that life. Um, one of them has a husband, uh, Kuza. You can look him up in history. We know a lot about this guy. Um, and they had sort of abandoned all that and come to Christ. And then you have the lowest of the low also coming to follow Christ. So you have them from all over the board. It doesn't seem like there's any kind of rhyme or rhythm to how you're picking these people. It doesn't matter about their past. And they're carrying around um, these pasts. Um, and so the background is really interesting of all these disciples. You have uh, Matthew, who is a tax collector, basically a Jewish trader, working with the government to oppress his own people. You have Simon the Zealot, uh, basically a first century terrorist, probably had murdered Roman soldiers. Um, they would carry these long daggers and pull them out in a crowd and murder a soldier and then s sneak out. They were terrorists. Um, the people that were surrounding Jesus um, were not high quality people. They just weren't. They were everything about the Beatitudes that you see. Um, and then... I mean, what about not just the backgrounds of the people? What about their competence? Surely he took them and made them into like really great, brilliant people. Let's look at that. Um, you have uh, Jesus starting off. Jesus is, is, is doing these very simple teachings, just these parables. Um, it's sort of a way how you would teach children. You're telling stories. And 
And at one point, Jesus finishes a parable, and it says, but Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still so dull? Like, he looks at them and is like, you don't get it? You're that dull? Okay, let's try again. And then he teaches them some more stuff. And then, uh, and then you keep going. Jesus starts, um, Jesus starts off in Mark 9 with teaching them. He says, he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. Easy to understand. You can follow that along easily. Uh, And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Again, self-explanatory. But they didn't understand what he was saying. And were afraid to ask him. Like, I don't get it. Well, ask him. No, he's going to think I'm stupid. (laughs) You ask him. "Uh Uh-uh. I'm teacher's pet. And none of them understood. And then not only that, they were non-confrontational, afraid to ask. What do you mean? Uh, And then, and so you move on a little farther um, a few minutes later, like the same passage, um, they were traveling down a road, and they're just having this conversation, and Jesus kind of hears it, and when they get where they were going, Jesus turns to them and it says, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Bunch of dudes who are dull, don't understand a word, but which one of us is the best? Uh, and they didn't even want to admit it. What are you talking about? Nothing. Nothing. Um, talking about the Bible. Um, okay, and then, uh, and then John, John 9, 49. The disciples come up to Jesus, and, and they say this. These next two, next two are, are my favorite. Um, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Okay, hold on. Um, so can we all agree, the less demons in your life, the better? Right? <laughs> Uh, so they're doing, they're, they're doing some healing, and they're using, there's apparently somebody who is, who is using the teachings of Christ that they had picked up somewhere, using the words of Jesus, and they're teaching these people the things that Jesus said, that they heard and they were blessed by, to bring healing to people. Um, because this is what the words of Jesus do. And the disciples come along, and they see them doing this. They're like, you're not one of us. Hey, we heard somebody using your words who's actually not one of us. Do we tell him to stop? And Jesus says, uh, uh, do not stop him for the one who is not against us, against you, is for you. He says, no. If somebody wants to use my words and bring healing to someone else, like, why would you stop that? Why? Why would you jump in? Um, and so there, there seems to be this misunderstanding that, that they think Jesus is doing the same thing that every, every religion in the world has done and every sort of tribe has done, like this is us, and you either join us or, or, um, and, and become a followers and get in line behind the hierarchy, and we're going to move. And Jesus is like, this is, not, this is not what we're doing. We're doing something different. And then, same chapter, a little farther, my favorite. Uh, and then he said messengers ahead of him, and he went... Uh, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. So hold on. The Samaritans were like the anti-Jews. They were this group of people. They had been fighting uh, ever since ancient Sidonia, a long time. Thousands of years, these people have hated each other. They don't spend time together. Um, But Jesus sent some of them to the Samaritans. Okay, so first off, they're already nervous. They already don't like these people, and they're nervous. Um, He sent them uh, to the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him. Because his face was set towards Jerusalem. In other words, they saw him praying towards Jerusalem. They realized he's a Jew. And they're like, you, you can't, you're not welcome here. Uh, and verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, 
Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Okay. The best. Um, hey, they're not receiving us. Do you want us to pray that God kills them? Should I, should I, be, should I just be praying that just, they're just wiped out and destroyed? I mean, we've been trying to do this for a long time. I could just do that right now. Instead of going to them like you said, we could just have them killed, right? Um, and then Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Okay, these guys aren't getting it. They're not the, the brilliant archetypes of everything that we should be. They're just not. Pretty dull They act tribal the way we do. They fail all the time the way we do. There's some racism, um, some bigotry. There's some hatred for things that have happened. They're not fully grown yet. They're they're obviously at the beginning of their journey. Even after uh, they set out in the book of Acts to start the church, um, they're not. These people around Jesus are not the things that they should be, but Jesus chooses them anyways. Um. Jesus is doing something different. He's making sure that all of us realize, top to bottom, left to right, all the way, that we realize that our abilities, our performance, our intellect is not what changes the world. He's doing something different. Uh, these are the things that we tend to measure everyone by. And, and, and Jesus says here, we we are going to go uh, to a deeper level. And I'm going to gather all of these people who are the misfits of society, who aren't uneducated, who aren't capable of any of it. And, and And I look at them and I say, hey, did you know you're blessed? Did you know you're accepted? Did you know you're loved? Did you know that you, not only those things, did you know that you, you are the salt of the earth? You are the light of the world. I know you think everyone else is. But I want you to know that you are. I want to empower you and make you realize just how important you are to this whole thing. Essentially, what he's saying is, you're my plan. I know that you think the plan is going gonna, is gonna to take place with the religious elite in the temple and synagogues, the teachers in the synagogues, the rabbis. Um, and Jesus becomes a rabbi, and he gathers all the failures and all the misfits, and he says, you are my plan. You know why? Because there's far more of you than there is of anyone else. And I think if people were to look around, what they would see is there are far more broken people uh, in the world, far more people that the rest of the elites in the world call useless and cast them out um, than there are healthy and able ones. And what if I just put together an army of uncapable people uh, and I poured into them, and I, and I helped them realize just how important in love they are, that when they band together in love, and they confess, and they're honest, and they just are authentic, and they spend time drawing near to those whom they have hated, and they draw near to them in love, and what if I can reform their hearts and turn them into graceful people? That would change the world. So he essentially looks at everyone and says, you're my plan. I know you think that I've got some backup plan with all these, all these elites. That's, that's why the synagogue and all that exists. No, you're it. You, you are capable of absolutely changing this thing and bringing about the reconciliation of all things. Um, he, he uses the uneducated, which is brilliant. He uses the uneducated to enlighten the world. And I love that. 
uh, he, he uses uh, the possessed and the blighted, the women of what they used to call ill repute, um, to take the message of like divine healing into the world. And he, um, those who regularly get it wrong, those who all the time are making mistakes, he actually uses them to bring about the reconciliation of God to all things. Um, and this is not just a brand new thing that Jesus was doing. God had been hinting about this the entire time. This had been sort of an undertone, and people weren't picking up on it all through the Old Testament. I want to show you one more story. Um, I was reading this week in, in 1 Kings uh, 17, and there's this passage that uh, is well-known, especially in the Jewish community. Uh, it's part of their Hanukkah celebrations. And um, it basically starts with this guy named Elijah. He's a prophet. And a prophet basically is someone who delivers the message of God. Like, they are awakened, and they have received the word from God. And usually it goes bad for them. They end up being killed because, honestly, nobody wants to hear from God because then you have to change your life, right? And so we tend to kill these people, like Jesus. Um, and so there's this guy, Elijah, and he's a prophet. And he's in the desert, and there's a drought. Elijah tells everyone, hey, there's about to be a drought. Turns out there's a drought. And God tells Elijah, hey, you're going to go to this specific town, uh, and there's going to be a woman there who's going to feed you. Um, once again, women providing for the men. Um, and then the word of the, it says this, the word of the Lord came to him, arise, go to Zarephath, uh, which belongs to Sidon. Uh-oh, Sidon again, right? Um, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he goes there and he finds this, this widow and, and he says, hey, uh, this is going to sound weird. God sent me here so that you could give me food. This has never worked for me before, but he's going to use it. Uh, and he walks up to, and he walks into her house and, and uh, here's, here's what she responds. And she says, um, and she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself, for my son, and that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. Uh, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So he says, again, this is going to sound crazy. Your last bit of food that you and your son have that you're going to eat and then die, give me some of it. (laughs) It's like uh, every like, TV pastor ever, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and she does. Uh, and the passage goes on, and she and her son ate, her, she and her household ate for many days, and the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty. So when you're reading an ancient passage like this, the question, the first question you need to ask is why was this story important? What is the message behind it? What did the ancient people need to learn from a story like this? Um, we're going to get there. The story's not done. There's one more thing that happens directly after this that people tend to not think about. Um, shortly after this, the woman's son becomes very sick. Um, and he's about to die, and he stops breathing. And she brings Elijah in, and she says, What have you against me, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance? Uh, You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. So, here's the mindset. This woman uh, assumes, because she is nothing, because she is poor, 
because she only has a son and she's a widow, no husband, no nothing. She's not important to society. She's not important to anyone in the world. She's literally about to eat her last meal with her son and then they're just resigning to starve to death because there's no more food anywhere. So she obviously assumes God doesn't even know I exist. I don't matter to God. Uh, His eyes are not upon me. But... um, I, I know that there are people in the world who God is paying attention to. Uh, they're like these prophets, like this guy Elijah. And Elijah comes to your house, and, and you do something for Elijah, and you know the eyes of God are upon Elijah. This is the only thing you can understand. Uh, and Elijah comes to your house, and suddenly your son becomes sick, and all you can think is, oh, he drew attention to me. I was kind of hoping God would never notice me here because I'm a mess, I'm a wreck, I have, there's things in my life that are awful, um, I've obviously sinned. I've obviously done all these terrible things. And God's eyes are obviously on Elijah because he's a man of God. Um, and he enters into my house. And then God looks at me and says, what is this lady doing? And he kills my son. This is the ancient mindset about how God views us. For a lot of people today, this is also the modern mindset for religious people of how God views us. I just, I don't want... I don't want God to see. Uh, we assume that when things go terrible, that, that God, is, God is punishing us for the evil things that we've done. It's sort of like a karma kind of thing. Um, and, and for some reason, we just assume these other people, things are going really good for them. It's because God has seen them and how good they are, and God is blessing them. So there's two things to take. From the, oh, hold on. Hold, let's finish the story. Uh, he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him, and he revived. So there's two things you pick up from a story like this. Um, first is, the first is about how to be filled up. And there's this, understanding from reading the story that even down to your last little bit, even when you feel spent, even when you're done, you've got nothing else, the way to be filled up, the way to find happiness and joy and purpose is to pour it out for other people. And as long as you're pouring out for other people, even what you think is the rest of it, this is all I have, I'm going to give it to you. Um, What we find is that we are filled over and over. And so the way to remain filled in the eyes of the ancient people of God, uh, is to continuously pour yourself out. This is a very gradual awakening that is going on right here. That anyone can take part in the work of God. Anyone can be filled. Anyone can find this joy. All it takes an understanding of what we come to know as the cross. Pouring yourself out for the salvation of others and being filled. Um, the second thing that we understand here is that God's eyes are upon us in love, that God is on our side. He's pushing us forward. Her son didn't get sick because God was punishing her. In fact, her suffering and pain are actually where she found God. It's the part where she realized that, oh, no, this was a divine appointment. This is actually what God had for me to learn. It is through this suffering that I actually find God. It's not through um, God finding me that, that I received suffering. 
And so there's this small little shift, and it's these little steps that happen throughout scriptures over and over and over and over where people sort of wake up to the idea of who God is and what God has for us and what God is doing, that God is not looking upon you with love. And then we get to Jesus, uh, this new rabbi with this upside-down kingdom uh, who enters into the story uh, in Matthew, and he says, hey, um, blessed are the poor, blessed are the mourning, blessed are the suffering, blessed are the persecuted. You are the salt of the earth. Uh, You are the light of the world. Do you see it? It's the awakening of all of this. And Jesus kind of lays it out. He says, this is not about your ability. This is not about how much you can impress me. It's not about any of that. And then we have some little caveats here. He says, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Okay, think about this. Everyone had been telling them, you are nothing, you are nobody, you are useless. And Jesus says, if the salt has lost its taste, if it's spent, if it's used up, it's not good for anything. How many of you have at some point in your life heard, that's actually for people who have done this. You can't be a part of this. This is for the achievers. Um, This is for those who were born this way. This is for those who were able to climb out. And this this is not for people who have uh, made bad decisions in their life. This is not for people who dropped out of school. This is not for the convicts. This is not for this particular group of people. There are things that some of us can receive and have access to because of one thing or another, but there are other things that you can't receive. In one way or another, we, we have all sort of seen this, or we've been a part of this, or we've taken part in this, this idea. Um, and Jesus says, when people tell you that, when you are rejected because you didn't make it, or you're not good enough, um, when they tell you that you're useless, you have to push back against that. You have to reject that. Because if you're useless, uh, if, if the salt is spent, if you ruined it before, if it's over, if it's done, whatever it was that, that, that you were heading towards, if, if it's spent and if it's done, if they think you're useless now, then all you're good for is to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. But no, you are the salt of the earth. You are. Push back against what they are telling you. Reject the ideas that they're pushing upon you. Don't. Don't lose the understanding that God is drawing near to you. And then, and then he says, you are the light of the world. And then he says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all those in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and glorify, uh, give glory to your Father in heaven. Have you ever felt like um, a little ashamed, like people were trying to hide you, the things that you've done? They're just trying to cover it up. You're sort of, have you ever been in a conversation and you bring someone up and then suddenly the conversation, let's not, let's not talk about that. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about them. They're an embarrassment. The things that they've done have really hurt this family or the things that they've done have hurt this, this community or this business or, or whatever. They're not a part of this. We're going to take our giant bushel pot and we're just going to put it right over them. They've got nothing to offer us. This is, 
This is a regular thing we do in conversation. This is why, this is why we label people all the time. Um, this is what, uh, if, if you look at, you know, we love in America to talk about things like, like the caste system in India and how they separate everybody by sort of classes and there's lower classes and higher classes. We do that in all of our conversations here too. We use simple words like hipster, right? What are we doing? What are we doing when we say that? We're, we're marginalizing people. We're pushing them aside and their voices don't matter. We use words like nerds. And, and, and we have all these little labels for all these little groups of people. And what we're doing is we're putting a bushel over and we're pushing them aside. They have no light to speak into my life. They have nothing to say to me. They have, they have no wisdom to bring. They have nothing to bring into the situation. And they walk in the room and everyone just kind of shuts down. I'm like, yes, can we help you? In other words, you have nothing to eliminate us with here. And Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are. Not, not someone else. You, with all of your baggage, everything you've come from, everything that, all the decisions that you've made, yes. All the, all the stupid things that you've done, yes, you carry all that. All of the, uh, all the ways that you've hurt people, all the ways that you're just not smart enough, not educated enough, you don't really get it, you have doubts, you have struggles, you, you're skeptical of all of these different things, all of that. But you know what? You're the light of the world. God sees you as part of the plan of what he's doing here. Um, and so when they come to you and they try to, they try to sort of squelch that light, he says, no. No one. No one who has a light is going to hide it under a bushel. You're going you're to you're put it on a lampstand and you're just going to speak. And you're going to be honest. You're my plan. He says, it's not them. It's not, the, it's not these higher ups. Which when you look at how the gospel works, this is how it ends as well. Victory, how do we define victory? We conquered the enemy. We destroyed them. We won. Does anyone ever describe victory as we totally lost and our leader got killed? No. That's called failure. Yet, when people are in need and they're suffering, they don't go and contemplate weapons of war. They don't sit and stare at these things and say, well, I bet that would really help. No, they contemplate the cross. Why? Because somehow the failure in the cross is what brings about salvation. Somehow heading down to the bottom is where we find our hope. Somehow God has set this thing up that when it gets difficult, we don't contemplate the powerful things. We contemplate the cross, the suffering of God, the, the divine creator of all things in the flesh on the cross. And he says, this is how you change the world. And then you start reading the teachings of Christ and he says, he's been saying this the whole time. He had to go to great extremes to prove this to us. And we still reject it and we still don't believe it. We still don't think we belong. We still don't think we know enough. We're always trying to drive ourselves out of these good things and reject goodness. What is that? You are the salt of the world. You are the light of the world. It's God telling you your worth no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been through. Those are just things that happened to you. They don't define who you are. You find your definition. You find your identity in Christ. And when we sit and we listen to Christ and we say, tell me who I am, and he tells you who you are, and you don't believe him. Well, the hope is that you'll gather every week and you'll hear it again and you're again, and eventually you'll start to believe it, and this is how change happens in the world. 
And so we're going to take communion. This is the symbol of all of this. Um, our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and take the elements and spread around the room. Um, and we're going to contemplate the cross, the great failure, which led to the resurrection, the great conquering of all things. Because as we held head down, this, is, this is, tends to be where we find God doing his thing. And we're going to embrace that. We're going to contemplate that. Um, I would like for maybe for you to contemplate all the ways that uh, either you or someone else around you um, has been told that their salt is spent, that, that they're useless, they're not good for anything but to be trampled. Or um, maybe you've seen, maybe you have, you've had people try to sort of, they're embarrassed by you and they're trying to cover you up. They've told you you have nothing to offer the conversation. Um, or, or people that you know who have been through this. And I want to contemplate those people this morning and I want to lift them up and I want to, I want to talk to God about them. I want to find a way to sort of at least in some way move towards them and move towards healing. So if we could, let's take a few minutes in prayer and we're to take communion. Uh, it's broken bread. It's, it's, it's poured out wine. It's the body of Christ broken for you. It's the blood of Christ spilled for you so that you could find reconciliation. You could find healing. You could find your worth. Um, and you could be encouraged to keep going on the journey. Shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you. We love you. Thank you for speaking to us constantly about our worth, about our value. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. It's all a gift. And there's no one who gives it to us um, in this world. No one gives us grace unless they've received it from you. Thank you for awakening mankind up to this idea. I pray that we would be people of confession that we would confess our sins the ways that we've taken part in, in the breakdown and the decay of, of your world, that we would confess that, that we would repent of it, that we would change, that we would understand that your cross is how the world changes. Thank you for these people. Speak to us, change us. Amen. Talk to Jesus.